James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so that you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, there's great debate among Bible scholars as to whether James was writing what we just read here to unbelievers or to believers. I believe in using the full context of this whole letter that we should see this as written to the church. Which, which was gathered there, but also knowing that it would be made up of both lost and saved. As you know, uh, we weren't, didn't have Bible study last week because I was in Virginia preaching a series of messages at a church I preach at twice a year up in Galax, Virginia. And I preached seven messages, a brand new sermon series I've never preached before, of Jesus' letters to the seven churches. And in that, what became very eye-opening in that study was the fact that as much as Jesus wrote to the churches... He was mainly writing to the individuals in the churches. I don't know how much you've ever thought about the fact that in those letters he would say to the messenger of the church, to he who has an ear to hear, to the one who conquers, if anyone will open the door. I know there are some of you that haven't fallen prey to this lady's teaching. All these different things. It was very clear that as much as he was writing to the churches and those literal churches that existed and to the churches all through the church age, he was also speaking directly to individuals. And he was also preparing his bride for his return and is. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. But he also, as he wrote to the churches, it was very clear in Jesus' letters, he was writing to some that were saved and some that weren't. And so I believe in the context, and I'm going to show you this from our context of the study of James, I think James is doing the same thing. To just say he's writing to unbelievers here. Some people think, well, he's only writing to unbelievers because the terms he's using and the things he's describing are only possible of unbelievers. But... At the same time, if we're honest, those of us who are believers, sometimes we look like the old Simon, if you will, instead of Peter. And I think it's dangerous to say it was just written to unbelievers. But at the same time, if you look in this letter, I'm going to show you he's been writing warnings to unbelievers and encouragement to believers all along. Let me show you what I mean. And I, and I want to say this to you. We should let the Holy Spirit show each of us where we stand with God. Either we're His and we let the flesh win some, in some instances, and we hate it. Or this is how we think, what we're going to be looking at in chapter 4. Or this is how we think, and it's evidence of our not being saved. And that's between you and the Lord. And please l- listen closely. God is not in the business of making you question your salvation. That's Satan. When you're, if you're lost, God will make that very clear to you. There's a big difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. And Satan is the one who wants to make you question, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm, If it starts with a maybe, 
the Holy Spirit's not the one talking because he doesn't usually say maybe, does he? No, he's pretty direct. And I thought about this. Did Satan know who Jesus was when Jesus came to the earth? Of course. I mean, he was the one who created him. He's seen him in his glory. Yet what, what does Satan do to Jesus when Jesus is there in the wilderness being tempted? He said, if you are the son of God. Isn't that interesting? So if Satan would say to Jesus, well, maybe you're not. Don't be surprised if Satan doesn't make us all question our salvation. We've all been there. But there's a big difference between questioning your salvation and knowing you're lost. This is not a message or our study is not going to move into, well, maybe you're not saved. No, no, no. There are too many preachers that have made a lot of money trying to get Christians rebaptized. All right. Listen to me. If you're lost, the Holy Spirit will show you and you need to respond. If you are a believer, though, don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit isn't saying, I'd like to clean you up a little bit more. I'm about to come get you and I want you ready and sparkling. You understand? So go with me to James chapter 1, and I want to just show you, as we go back through the book of James a little bit, you're going to see all through the context of this letter, he's been giving warnings to the lost and encouragement to the believers. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 12. Count it all joy, my what? My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and st let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're obviously encouraging believers. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So in here is not only an encouragement to believers, also a warning. There's going to be some that don't stand the test. Look at chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. He says, Knowing, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Sounds like he's writing to unbelievers, isn't he? Well, that's because in our churches are going to be those who are saved and those who are not. But Jim, they were, they're members. Well, I hope none of you are putting your confidence and your faith in your membership. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, not saved. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in the full context so far, and we're going to show you a couple more, it's obvious James is writing this letter to the church, to those who are the, who are the dispersed Jews who had become Christians, but not, he, not everybody's saved. Was he writing to believers or unbelievers? Yes, both. Go to James chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 17. In James chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment without mercy, sorry, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. He then goes on and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that kind of faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. So again, he's saying there's some of you in there that say you're saved, but you're not. There's going to be evidence of your salvation. Look at James chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. James chapter 3, starting in verse 10, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think it's pretty clear he's talking to both lost and saved who are there calling themselves Christian. And that's what we need to keep in mind as we move into chapter 4. Again, if the Holy Spirit is showing you you're lost, folks, you better surrender to Jesus Christ and give your life to Him where He again becomes Lord. On top of that, if you are a believer and He's confirmed it in our hearts because His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His children, don't be surprised if He isn't still trying to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ and having you become more and more ready for His return. Let the Holy Spirit show you your heart, your true condition. Now, before we go and break down chapter 4, which we're going to do tonight, we're only going to get probably as far as verse 3, I want to take you to some scriptures that will help us set the stage for what God's going to show us. And I kind of touched on it a little bit at the beginning of my study for tonight. But go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verses 12 through 14. I, I want to have the Spirit of God speak to all of us as we see the world get closer and closer to its judgment day, as we see the prophecies being fulfilled in our midst. I want you to have the Spirit of God change how you look at things in this way. Look at 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. By the way, we already saw in James, the tests are coming. Why? To produce steadfastness and to show whether or not we're really saved. It says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following, the, verse 6 especially, these trials have come to prove your faith genuine. So don't be surprised if something, as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen to verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't miss this. He said, we know that there's a judgment coming on the world. If you read the book of Revelation, most of it's dealing with the tribulation period and the return of Jesus and the, the, the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. But what does the scripture say God is going to do prior to the judgment of the whole world? He's going to purify his bride. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. Now, I want to say something that doesn't go along with a lot of things our churches have been preaching here in America, especially. We've been taught that the Christianity is just going to change the world for Jesus. And, and we're going to just, there's going to be this revival that's going to break out in the land. Folks, the Bible's very clear that godlessness is going to get worse and worse in the last days. And Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 18, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 said, Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And as I started to see, as I was preaching and preparing messages for the church there in, in Galax, and also they're on our website there for everybody to watch if you, have it, if you have the opportunity. Jesus wrote the book of Revelation to who? To the churches. It was given to John, but it was written to the churches. And before he deals with the message from chapter 4 through 19 of what's going to come on the world, even though we're not here, and we've been given the responsibility just like the Old Testament prophets, even though they were wondering when this stuff was going to happen that they were given prophecy about, and they told us it's not going to happen in your lifetime, or we were glad they were faithful to share it. We've been given the same responsibility. Yet, before he gets to all the judgment on the world... What does he do in chapters 2 and 3? He cleans house. He cleans house. He starts with Ephesus and he says, listen, um, you're doing all this great stuff, but you've left your first love. You've walked away from me. You're doing the right thing, but it's not out of a love relationship. Realize the height from which you have fallen. He then encourages Smyrna, and then he goes and he warns the next church as sin has crept in, but not just in the church, in the individuals. And then, unfortunately, he then goes to the next church and says, not only has sin crept in, it's now being taught as doctrine, and the church is okay with it. And folks, across the board in Christendom, because of the sin that's creeping, especially in that he was talking about sexual sin in those letters to those churches, would we not agree that sexual sin is becoming a big issue in the world today? And what's happening is individually, sin is creeping into some people's individual thoughts because we got some Christians saying, well, I'm not really sure that that's a sin anymore. And then it's gone to the point now that actually churches are actually teaching it as doctrine. They'll have signs out front that say, you all are welcome here because this, we don't think it's a sin here. Now, hopefully, if you're out there and you're struggling with these sexual sins, listen to me. You're welcome to come to the church. Jesus didn't come to call the healthy. He came to call the sick. You're welcome to come, but don't think that your life is okay if Jesus says something's sin. But there are churches now, just like he warned the churches, that are saying that sexual sin is okay. And it's being taught. And we could go on and on till the end. In the last, of course, Philadelphia was given commendation as well. And they were told, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And that's a promise that's going to come on the whole world. And that's a promise for all of us. But when he gets to Laodicea, he says to the church in the last time period, in that church there, you think you're okay, but you're not. And he describes them as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, all descriptions of the lost. In Revelation 3.20, we've all seen that picture. Probably our grandmother had it in her house on the wall of Jesus 
in the garden knocking on the door. Remember that painting? And there's no handle on the door. It only can be opened from the inside. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Revelation 3.20 was written to the church. Folks, I want to encourage you with something. Like I told you before we got our video started, I am praying every day Isaiah 62 where it says, Lord, keep your promises for Israel. You said you would. And when those who keep you, put you in remembrance hold you to it, you said you'd act. And that's what I'm praying for, for God to finish what he started with Israel, fulfill his promises, because that's what he's told us to do. Yet at the same time, if we are sitting here and going, look at the world, look at all this one world government stuff, look at the wickedness of our government and all this stuff, and you just focus on the judgment that's to come, you're missing something. He's right now working on us. Don't be surprised if you are having it a little harder now in your personal walk. And folks, I can tell you personally, I'm experiencing more warfare. But at the same time, I'm also under the loving hand of my father who's disciplining me through this and he's using it to shape me because he's saying to me as well Jim I want you rewarded when I come I want to purify you I want you to make yourself ready go to Romans 13 by the way I saved you about six scriptures by just quoting them Instead of having you turn there so you can't go home and say, he used so many scriptures tonight. Because I know you've never said that. Go to Romans 13. Look at verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You're going to see those words come up a lot in the rest of our study tonight. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What did Jesus say was going to be the biblical evidence of our salvation? The fact we were, here, fact we were his disciples. John 13, verses 34 and 35. By our love one for another. Folks, one of the things that God's going to be allowing to happen in the churches is that there's going to be division. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I hear there's division among you, and no doubt, I believe there is, because that's the only way we're going to know who has the Spirit and who doesn't. But for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are born again, we just saw James talk about that at the end of chapter 3. The meekness of wisdom, remember, meekness is strength under control. Don't be fighting and jockeying for position. Don't be trying to win your side. Don't be trying to one-up somebody else. But those of us who are in Christ need to be strong in what we believe, yet under control, believing that it's the Spirit of God who's going to take care of our situations, not we need to do something and we need to. we got a problem in our church. Let me get on the phone and see if we can't get some more people to get this fixed. And we think we're righteous. We think we're doing the right thing because, I mean, we're defending God's church. No, 
Jesus actually gave us an example. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, yet he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Meekness is strength, standing for truth, but under control. And when you start moving into, I need to do something, we already saw in the book of James, does man's anger produce the righteousness of God? But Jim, then they're going to win. God says, don't worry, I, I got all that under control. I'm keeping track of who's who and who's not. Could Jesus have done a lot more with all the people that were against him? But he submitted himself to the Father's plan. Paul even says that when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, why not be wronged? You're taking your brother to court and in front of the lost people of all things. Why not be wronged? But nowadays, that's not our attitude. We think we're righteous by standing up for truth. No, no, no. The Bible says how we stand up for truth is we hold on to the truth. And we know the truth. But we don't have to defend the truth. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him, does he? Speak when he tells you to speak. Be silent when he tells you to be silent. And you need to learn the balance of being led of the Spirit. It's time for us to wake up because our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Go to James chapter 3 again. I want to read it to you. I just quoted it to you, but I want to read it to you again. This sets the stage for where we're going to be in chapter 4. He's just finished. Because remember, when James wrote this, he didn't say, well, I just finished chapter 3. I'll write chapter 4 tomorrow. This is a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen again to verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, there's that word again, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make what? Peace. Folks, you're going to see this happen more and more in your churches. Where those who are going to be trying to cause division to get their side won. Versus those who are going to say, the Lord's in control. The Lord's in control. So let's start to unpack James chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 10 again, and then we're going to break it down little by little. But he then says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, another word for that could be pleasures, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, pleasures. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Some people say, Jim, that's believers. No, no, no. The spirit that he's made to dwell in us in this passage is not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about our spirits. He's jealous for our spirits, that they be made alive and he can have relationship with us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Look closely again at verse 1. What causes fights, quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, if you don't mind underlying in your Bible or highlighting, highlight the words among you, right after the word fights, and within you, right after the word war. Notice how our passions or our pleasures are at war within us so that it causes quarrels among us. Did you catch that? It's our passions and our pleasures that are at war within us that cause us to be at war among us. So if we're going to stop the warring among us, where do we have to go? Allow the Spirit of God to fix the passions that are at war within us. Do you understand? In other words, you don't go get rid of the cobweb, you kill the spider. Because if you deal with a cobweb, the spider's still there. So if we say, you know what, I'm just not going to be, I'm not going to, I'm going to be loving and I'm not going to quarrel. Well, have you dealt with the real issue of why you even quarreled in the first place? Let God work at the within you. The among you will take care of itself. In verses 2 through 3, I paraphrased it this way. Instead of yielding our desires to God's spirit to control, we try to include God in having him help us get what we want. By the way, does that not sound like American Christianity? Take the scriptures and turn it into whatever you want it to say. When God becomes your big Santa Claus and you, have, you can use his power to accomplish all your dreams. There's a problem with this on many levels. Let me read it to you one more time. Instead of yielding our desires to God's spirit to control, we try to include God in having him help us get what we want. That's why he says in verses 2 and 3, he says, uh, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, with the wrong motives, to spend it on your passions. Let me show you what the Bible actually says about how we're to be living our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, what true Humility looks like, not a fake humility, but a true humility. Go to Galatians chapter 2 and look at verse 20. Now I'm going to make a statement here that I'm going to then back up with the scriptures. True believers have given up their rights to follow Jesus and yield our lives to him. He is our Lord. He gets to call the shots in our lives, not us. 
Galatians 2, look at verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look what he says again. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. The life I do live, I live by faith in the one who died, loved me and died for me. Listen, he says, my life now is Christ's life, and whatever he wants me to do, I'll do. Do you remember back when we studied the book of James and began the study? How did James describe himself? Remember, he was a half-brother of Jesus? As a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever he says I'm to do, I'll do. Now, here in America, though, we've gotten really good at hearing what God says and then deciding if we want to do it and rationalizing scripturally even how we cannot obey God. Folks, Jesus is always testing the real faith of his followers. Did he not do that with Abraham? Did he not promise Abraham that he'd be a mighty nation and give him a miraculous son and that the Messiah would come through that promised son? The promise to Israel would come through that promised son? And then 13 years later, what does God tell Abraham to do with that promised son? I want you to sacrifice him for me. But God, that can't be. No, he, the Bible says, submitted to God so fully in his mind, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because he's promised he's going to come through him. But he does, he goes and he does what, of course, God stops him, but he goes and he does what God asked him to do. His life was not his. He wasn't living his life to defend himself, to protect himself, to kind of make sure he was taken care of. Whatever the Father said, that I'll do. Now, folks, I'm preaching to myself here. Go to Galatians 5. Jim, I always love the fact that Isaiah was a young man, much stronger than his father. And if he did not have that same level... You're talking Isaac. Uh, yes, yes, yep. He didn't have that same oh. depth of conviction and commitment, yep. dedication and obedience. Isaac had laid his life down. We don't see him fighting his father at all. We see him asking a couple of questions. His father says God will provide the, the, the lamb. Exactly. He laid his life down. By the way, we also know who he was a picture of, don't we? And we're going to get to that one as well. We're going to get to that scripture as well. Go to Galatians 5. I'm sorry? We don't see him again after that until he came for his bride. Don't get me going now, Sheila. Don't get me going. Don't get me going now. Go to Galatians 5. By the way, if you didn't hear what Sheila said, we don't see Isaac again until he get, comes for his bride. Go to Galatians 5, 13 through 25. In Galatians 5, verse 13, he says this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. By the way, are we forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future? Is there any sin you can commit after salvation that will separate you from God? Boy, we could have some fun with that, couldn't we? But not for those of us who have given up our rights to become followers of Jesus. Yes, we've been given freedom, but we've been given freedom to serve and to surrender to him. We were a slave before, and we could not get away from our old master until Jesus took care of that. But now that we've been born again, 
We don't use that freedom that we've been given to live for the flesh. Although there are those who say you can. But we surrender our lives on a daily basis to him. Keep reading. For the whole law is fulfilled, verse 14, in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jim, what about love your God? I think he's the one that wrote that. Therefore, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're loving God because he wrote it. But if you bite and devour one another, boy, there it is again. Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And folks, right now, I am seeing, seeing as I deal with churches around the country, a lot of division in churches. People jockeying for control and power and wanting to get certain things taken care of. Folks, listen to me. Don't be a part of that. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Holy Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but the fruit of the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. One of the things that has grieved me over the years, and I've never fully understood it until I grew more in my walk with the Lord and understanding of the Word, is how many people that even, you know, pastors who wanted the special parking space, deacons who had the little name tag so that you'd know they're a deacon, and how subtly we all jockey for position in the church. Choir members who grumble at the fact that they didn't get picked to sing the solo. Folks, within all of us is a desire to move up the ladder in some way or another, and Jesus says, Whoever is willing to go down the ladder, I'll exalt. You exalt yourself, you're going to be humble. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. I haven't seen this one cross-stitched very much. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. By the way, there are probably some young people out there that say, what in the world is cross-stitching in the old lady's lap? Sorry, Jeannie. You are what you are, right? There, I'm getting older, too. Go to verse 15. He died for all, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Does that sound a little bit like Galatians 2.20? By 
By the way, I love your response, by the way, Jeannie. You just gave a perfect example of someone in the spirit, because I jokingly said you were an old lady, and you were like, I am what I am. That's, you could have been offended. You could have been, you know what I'm saying? But you're so confident in who you are in Christ. You know what? That's what I am. I actually like getting older. I'm one of those weirdos that I love getting older. If I, if I were a kid, I'd be telling you that I'm 58 and a half. Because every day I'm closer to heaven. Go to Psalm 37. By the way, we're to no longer live for ourselves. But, you know, I had plans for how my life was going to go. And I'm at that point in my life where I've got my kids through college. My wife and I have extra expendable income. I have a lot of plans. And then sometimes God says, but I have something else I have in mind. Are we willing to say, Lord, it's not my life, it's yours? Psalm 37, look at verses 4 through 11. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that's the kind of preaching I want to hear. Well, you don't know what it means if you think that that means you get to pick the Winnebago. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. There's that word meek again. What's the passage saying? He's saying, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And as you're going to see a little bit later in our study, if we really are delighting ourselves in the Lord, his desires are our desires. But we like to take the word of God and we like to flip it. We, James says, you ask, but you don't receive. Because you ask so that it'll be used the way you want it to go. Jesus did pray, Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. He lined his heart up with the desires of God, and his desi God's desires were his desires, and God gave him the desires of his heart, which is us. I love who said that. That's awesome. Yes, sir. In verse 11 there, where it says, but the meek shall inherit the land, mm -hmm. is that the same as the meek shall inherit the earth? It's exactly the same, and to be honest with you, which we don't have time to chase it, if you were to go back, look real quick at Psalm 37. I'm going to chase it real quick, but only quick, quick. Look at verse 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 9, uh, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Uh, verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land. Uh, look at verse 22. Those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Uh, look at... Uh, Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit what? 
The land. When are we going to get the land? Well, that's when the millennial kingdom comes, folks. There is going to be a literal kingdom on this earth where those who have been faithful are going to be given the land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will get the fulfillment of the promise I'm going to give to you and your descendants, this land. They never got it while they were on the earth, but they're coming back. And we're going to sit at the king, in the kingdom at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the 12 apostles are going to be the ones who are going to be ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. There's going to be a Gentile branch of government. We're going to be back on this earth, and those who are the righteous are going to be given the land. Just like Adam and Eve were at the beginning. They were given dominion, but they lost it. We're going to get it back. It's going to be an amazing time. And folks, the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth, the land. But not this one, the reworked one, which is, I think is good. Go to Philippians chapter 2. We've been hinting at this all night. Sheila pointed it out a little bit with Isaac. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 16. We're not going to do the small section that typically we look at in this. I want you to get the full context here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Listen, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I think that's that word slave again. By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But not just death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, that's the desire, and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He goes on. We've always stopped at verse 11. Oh, he's going to be glorified. And we say, praise the Lord, Jesus is going to be glorified because he humbled himself. Therefore... You too, because we have this same mind. It's ours in Christ Jesus. We should do nothing out of selfish ambition. We should be submitting ourselves to God and working out this salvation that we've been given with fear and trembling. That's a reverence. Taking serious the time that we're in. Understanding that as much as a judgment is coming on this globe, that means he's purifying his bride right now and we need to surrender to that part. 
We need to stop thinking, well, I'm a church member, I'm saved, I'm okay. No, God is working on us to teach us how to surrender our daily flesh desires to Him. We have desires within all of us. They're at war within us. And that causes us to be at war among us. And He's saying, let the Holy Spirit win that battle of the war within you. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You don't resist the devil and he'll flee. You what? Submit yourself therefore to God. Lord, I had a lot of plans. But that's not what you have me here for. To accomplish my plans. What do you have in mind? Now, does that mean we never get to do anything we want? No. Go ahead and ask. If what he has in mind for you is actually something you want and he wants, that's a good thing. We, by the way, lay our lives down willingly because he is good and his way is best. It's okay, like I said, to ask God for things, but do so with a heart that is willing and okay if he says no. Because remember, you only are to desire what he desires for you. His desire is to be your desire. So in the time we have left, we're not going to go back to James 4 anymore. We're going to come back next week and really break down the rest of it. But what I want to do is I want to read to you some more scriptures. I don't know if you've caught this yet or not. But the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is full of instructions to believers to purify. Now, I'm going to do this for the fun of it. Is there any Christian in the room that feels like they're all done and they're ready to go because God's got no more for them to be? I mean, you've reached your level of perfection. I'm not raising my hand either. Okay, this will help you. You would agree that he's not done with any of us, right? There's a lot that he, then why are we fighting? But again, I'm preaching to myself here. We would all agree that if we're still here, there's still more that he wants to accomplish in us and through us. He's preparing. There's more reward for, for down the road. And we would all agree, I'm not there. Okay, then why do we fight it then? And here's why. Because we still want control. We know all the right answers. We know all the Bible Sunday school answers. But the, the issue in each of our lives, and I know the Spirit of God speaking to us in different areas, because each of us, He's working in different ways. His testing of our faith is going to be different for each of us. There are some things that aren't even a test of faith for you, but there are some things that are. Things that aren't a test of faith for me would be for you, and vice versa. But in those areas where God's saying, I want you to trust me, He's going to put you in situations that make you uncomfortable, that make you unhappy. He's going to push areas of your life that you don't want him messing with. Lord, I was kind of comfortable in my Christian walk until you opened that closet. Well, didn't you give me the whole house? Well, kind of. I just kind of hoped you didn't open that closet. I think that closet's in the house, isn't it? Yeah, but why'd you wait until now? You weren't ready, but now you are. And let's, let's open that closet. Would you not agree that some of the things God's been showing you in your walk with him as he's purifying you for his return have probably been there for a long time? But he's waited until now for a reason. He's doing it because he loves you. 
let him, let him open it up and let him, as you submit yourself to God, do what needs to be done. By the way, I have found in my life, and God's been reminding me as he's been walking, I'm walking through something right now, um, he's been reminding me that every time he asked me to open a closet that I didn't want to open or do something I didn't want to do, as I look back, I was so glad I did because it was actually one of the best things that ever happened. I thought it was going to be bad, but it ended up being really good. He's been saying, this will be that way too if you let me do it. You got to trust him. So let's let God's word as we close tonight speak to this and remind us of these truths. Go to Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, we love verse 13, don't we? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we're looking for. Come, Lord Jesus. But we forget what's written before and after that. The grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation. Praise the Lord. No, no. Hang on. Let, let the rest of it be read. Training us. To renounce ungodliness, it's a process, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Verse 14, this same Jesus who we're going to see one day gave himself for us to redeem us from all, all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Go to Titus 3, look at verses 1 through 10. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, there it is again, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but... When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We'd love to stop there, but Paul doesn't stop there. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Go to 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 
2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. I could go on. Are you starting to see how throughout the whole New Testament, as much as he's writing to believers and encouraging us on the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ, he's at the same time saying, don't stop there, because if you stop there, you might not have it. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following, we're to make every effort to add to our faith, knowledge and brotherly love and self-control. For if you have these qualities and they're increasing, they're going to keep you from being ineffective in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you. As we get closer to the rapture of the church and then the judgment period of the tribulation and then the millennial kingdom, don't just sit here in these last days and say, Jesus, just come get us. He said, that's not my job, just to come get you. If you are mine, I am going to be working on you intensely to get you ready. Ladies, you remember back when you knew the wedding day was coming? That's all you could think about, wasn't it? You ate celery. You were so focused on that day because you, Becky had a hair appointment to do a test hair appointment. Do you understand what I'm saying? She didn't just have a hair appointment to get her hair done for the wedding. She had a hair appointment to do a test of the hair for the hair of the, that blew my mind. I mean, I'm a guy. I was going to be wearing a tux that somebody, some other guy wore the weekend before. I didn't, I didn't care. Because, of course, guys are thinking about the honeymoon, not the wedding day. But the, you women, you were thinking, you, were, you, were, you stood in front of the mirror a lot, didn't you? Making sure that you were ready and every little thing was just so. The wedding is coming, folks. The wedding is coming. Allow the Spirit of God to stand you in front of the mirror of His Word. And let Him show you what He wants to get fixed between now and then. I'm going to close tonight with the end of Paul's life. Remember, he's written most of this stuff we've read. Go to 2 Timothy 4. Remember, we, we're able to be meek and we're able to be humble and under self-control and not try to jockey for position and defend our rights because we trust in a God that knows and a God that cares and a God that protects us and a God who's good. Listen to what Paul says in verses 14 through 18. He says, Alexander the coppersmith, did me great harm. By the way, earlier in this same chapter, he said he knows it's time for him to die. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. I want you all to go get him back. That's not what he says, is it? He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. I'm handing him over to the Lord. Beware of him yourself, though, for he has strongly opposed our message. At my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. 
But the Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Oh, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know how you can stop having that fight about the passions and the pleasures that are war within you? Give full surrender of your heart to Jesus. Ask him to be the one who puts within you the desire and the ability to act out his good pleasures. Stop thinking, well, I really want this and maybe I can work it out that I can get God to do this. And become a person that says, Lord, I gave you my life and I took it back. I didn't lose my salvation. I just took control back. And we all have. And he says to you, give him back. Over the years as I have been a pastor, I've done a lot of baby dedications. Where the parents come and they bring their child and they, we pray over them and they hold the child up and they say, this child was given to us by God and we give this child back to God. And then years later, They'll come into my office with a concern and a struggle because something's happening or whatever. And this child's not coming out the way they hoped he would or she would. And I've had to encourage them and remind them to pull out that old baby dedication certificate. Did you give your child to the Lord? You might want to remind yourself that you did and give them back. We have to do that sometimes with each of our kids. We have to do that with our own lives. As he's spoken to us tonight, if you're not his, he'll, he's shown you. Surrender. He loves you. If he's confirmed that you are, but he's purifying you, don't let Satan beat you up. But just say, thank you, Father. Do that work in me. I give you this area. I trust you in what it is you're talking to me about. I love you. We'll see you next week.